Plum Creek Church, and we are a place where you matter. Our mission here is centered around change lives, changing lives. We believe this happens through three important relationships, intimacy with God, intentionality with family, and influence with others. God has something he wants to say specifically to you wherever you are. Our hope is that you leave encouraged and closer to him than ever before. We'd love to connect with you online at plumcreek.church or on social media to see how Plum Creek is impacting our community and what opportunities we have for you and your family to get connected. If you'd like to support the ministry we're doing here in Castle Rock, two easiest ways are through the Give tab on our website or via your mobile device by texting any dollar amount to 720-606-5563. It's a secure connection with simple instructions to get set up. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll enjoy this message. so excited to have our guest speaker with us this weekend, Reza Zadeh. Reza played college football at Colorado State University. Then he went on staff at Timberline Church in Fort Collins. That's where he met uh, Doug and Beth. Uh, in two, uh, 2014, he went on staff with Athletes in Action, which is a ministry about reaching and, and serving professional and college athletes. And as of last year, he is the chaplain of your Denver Broncos. So would you guys give a warm welcome to Reza Zadeh. Thanks, Thanks, Brad. Thank you, you so much. Well, Plum Creek, it is so great to be back um, here with you all. It's been a while since we got to come to be with you. And my family and I, we definitely consider Plum Creek our home down south. And uh, we live in Fort Collins. And it's great to be here, so thank you so much. Um, it has been a while since I've been here. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. We've never had the opportunity to meet. I would love to introduce you uh, to my family. And so I have a picture here I want to show you. Um, that woman to the right, that is my wife, Allison. And besides Jesus, she is the one who's responsible uh, for who I am, and I'm so thankful for her. Um, Olivia is sitting right there. She's in the pink vest sitting on my lap. She is nine years old. No one told me that nine-year-olds turn into 19-year-olds like right away. No one told me that. That was uh, something people had left out. My son, Owen, he is eight years old. And um, Owen is an amazing little boy. I love hanging out with my buddy. Um, but I got to tell you, he is very concerned for the eternal destiny of some of his friends. Um, we were at dinner one day, and he went to a new school this last year. And we do this thing. Some of you may do. High lows. What's your high? What's your low for the day? And it came around to his turn for the low. And, and we said, Owen, what's your low? And he kind of put his head down, and his you know, lip comes out. And I'm like, uh-oh, what happened? Happened. And I said, buddy, what's your low? And he's like, I found out my best friend at school is not a Christian. And, um, and we were like, well, that's okay. But I'm just wondering, like, how do you know he's not a Christian? And he's like, well, I walked up to him on the playground and I asked, hey, are you Christian? And the kid said, no, I'm Eli. And um, <laughs> so, and then he said, no, I mean, like, do you like go to church? Do you follow Jesus? Do you read the Bible? And the kid said, no. And I said, well, Owen, like, what did you do? 
And he's like, I just walked away from him. <laughs> and so um, we're working on his evangelism skills and uh, talking to him. And then Macy, Macy's our five-year-old spitfire sitting, sitting there on my wife's lap. Um, Macy used to be our family vegetarian. And I say used to be, uh, about, I don't know, six, seven months ago, my wife was driving her in Fort Collins and there's a restaurant called Famous Dave's Barbecue. And um, really good. But when you look at the logo, when you're five, the logo is a pig in fire. And so she sees that. She's like, mom, why is that pig in fire? And my wife had to tell her, well, we cook animals and we eat them, which freaked her out. Like she loves animals. And so she swore off eating animals. And so we're sitting around the table at night and I'm hearing the story. And I'm like, Macy, but like, what about hot dogs? And she goes, are hot dogs animals? And I was like, yeah, sorta, you know, but yes, they are. And I said, well, what about bacon? And she said, no, I'm not going to eat hot dogs. I said, what about bacon? She loves bacon. She goes, are bacon's animals? I said, yeah, they're pig. Okay, no, I'm not going to eat those. Hamburgers, what are they? I said, cow. No, I'm not going to eat them. And then I, I thought I'd catch her. I was like, how about chicken nuggets? And she goes, wait a minute. Is there chicken in chicken nuggets? <laughs> and I said, sometimes. And, uh, <laughs> but a couple weeks, but I would say a couple months ago, we were at breakfast and she smelled bacon and she started sobbing because she misses bacon. And so she went ahead and had bacon. And so she is now back to the good side and she is eating meat like this. If you're a vegetarian, I'm very sorry, but it's easier when one of our family, if everyone eats. So I do want to also say, Plum Creek, thank you all so much. Um, you all, when my family and I, my wife and I took the step to become missionaries, uh, Plum Creek was one of the first churches that came and partnered with us. So every single month, um, you all have partnered with us. You guys have given financially. You all prayed for us as we get the opportunity to share Jesus um, to athletes literally all over the world. And we're so thankful for it because we believe um, that athletes have a platform and we want that platform to point to Jesus. And so God is changing lives and we are thankful that Plum Creek is a part of this. But I do have to say, like many of you, my children are in this tidal wave um, called youth sports. I don't know if you've experienced the tidal wave or the machine called youth sports. And I gotta say, I don't have a lot of hope for the future of sports. I really don't, because as I and my family and my wife, as we experience what youth sports has become, we see that parents have hijacked sports away from kids. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the world of sports that all those sports are great. There's a lot of damaging things that are happening as well. Unfortunately, sports, it's not just a game anymore. It's a $420 billion worldwide industry. That if you think about this, 3.5 billion people a few weeks ago watched 22 men chase around a little white and black soccer ball for the World Cup finals. 3.5 billion people. There is nothing else in our culture, in our world that brings people together like sports. But the thing that we've bought into for many of us is that sports is life. That the culture of sports, it dictates how we plan our weekly schedules, what we spend our money on, what we wear, where we go, who we talk to, how we schedule our day. That this thing called sports has, in, has infiltrated how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. And can I say, this was my story for a lot of my life. For a lot of my life, my God, who I worshipped, was football. I literally made a deal with God. I prayed this prayer with God and I said, God, if you make me good at football, I'll give my all to you. 
Like, like if you make me good on the field, then everything else I do off the field, I will, I will make it all about you. And thankfully, God knew I was tripping when I prayed that prayer because it was a terrible prayer. Like some of the prayers that we pray, are they're just bad prayers. And that was one of my bad prayers. And I'm thankful that we serve a God that when we pray things like that and we don't receive them, sometimes we say, well, God's just mad at me or God can't provide or, 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 or God is just mean or God's holding out on me. When in reality, God doesn't give us what we want because he knows exactly what we need. You know, my kids, you know what they want? They want a Slurpee every single day of the year. What they probably need is a Slurpee on July 11th every year, and that's it. All right? 7-Eleven, get it? So, so that's the only day that they can have a Slurpee. We think that we're thankful we have a God that doesn't give us always what we want, but he knows exactly what we need. You see, I was a product of my culture. That the culture I grew up in and the home I grew up in and the world I grew up in, that I grew up in, the sports was elevated and is elevated to this God-like status that people worship. Now, here's the truth. For a lot of us, maybe it's not sports that we worship. You know, for me it was, for some of you it might be, but for some of you, what you worship may not be sports. It could be how people perceive you. It could be how you're seen on social media. You might worship your job, your future, your retirement, your wealth, your portfolio, your family, your children, your spouse, whether you have a spouse or don't have a spouse. That there's a lot of things that compete for our attention. There's a lot of things that we worship. And the reason that you and I gravitate towards things, the reason that we find ourselves worshiping things is because you and I were created by the almighty God, almighty creator. We were hardwired to worship. That's how we were designed. We were designed to worship him who is full beauty, who is full of fulfillment, who is the only one that can satisfy every desire that we have. Every one of us were designed to worship him, so every one of us know how to worship. It's impossible for us not to worship because that's how we were created. It's a part of us as much as breathing is a part of us. It's how God wired us together. So today we're going to unpack what does worship look like. We're also going to take a look at what gets in the way of our worship and what gets in the way of us worshiping God and God alone. So if we're going to talk about worship, it's good to define it. And so here's a very simple definition of worship, ascribing ultimate worth or value to someone or something that they or it is ultimately worthy of all of your time, of all of your energy, of all of your affection, that we bow our heart, mind, and soul towards something. That's what worship is. It's the old church father, Martin Luther, that said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. And so this morning, we're going to be confronted with the reality that many of us have connected our hearts and we've confided in something else besides God, that we've allowed our worship to be polluted by things of this world. You see, the trouble isn't that we don't worship. The trouble isn't that we don't know how to worship correctly. 
The trouble is that we have allowed our culture to dictate what we should worship, who we should worship, and how we should worship. And that's exactly what we're going to dive into today. So the goal for today, if you're following along in your sermon guide, I want you to write down this goal. The goal for today is identify false idols in our lives that compete with our allegiance to God and learn to worship God alone. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again. To identify false idols in our lives that compete with our allegiance to God and learn to worship God alone. So if we're going to identify these idols, let's figure out, well, what, what is an idol? We've, we've discovered what worship is, giving ultimate worth to something. An idol is anything that begins to function as a substitute for God in your life. Anything that consumes your time, your energy, your thoughts, what continues to plague you as you wake up in the morning, the first thing that comes to mind what causes you to lie awake at night, what you find yourself researching online, that can be described as an idol. Throughout human history, idols have been erected in human hearts that have taken, play, that have taken God's place for our allegiance. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a historical account. We're going to go back to 9th century BC to a group of people called the Israelites, the people of God, the people that God had claimed for himself. And we're going to see how did idolatry infiltrate their lives and how do we see ourselves in the midst of this? Because here's the challenge. Here's what we're going to find. That these people, it's not that they replaced God with idols. is that they chose to worship God and at the same time worship idols at the exact same time. They were worshiping Yahweh, the God, the creator, and at the same time worshiping a Canaanite rain god named, named Baal. And so they were trying to worship two things at the same time. Now my wife and I, we haven't been married for a long time. Some of you have got decades on us. We've been married for 12 years. But here's what I do know about marriage. I cannot go to my wife, Alice, and say, Allison, honey, I love you. But you know what? I'm going to go love this other woman at the exact same time. Like, that doesn't work. I know it's only 12 years, not an expert. That doesn't work. But we do the exact same thing with God. God, I love you. I trust you. I'll give you my life. But actually, I kind of love this thing as well. God, do you mind coexisting with this thing that I have in my life? And so to set the stage for this, for this spiritual showdown, we're going to find the, the, the nation of Israel has been in a three-year drought. For three years, it hasn't rained. And their crops are fading. There's famine. And so obviously, the people are a little nervous saying, hey, it hasn't rained for three years. So they identify themselves with the Canaanites, a foreign people, that worship a rain god named Baal. There's no rain, so they're going to go find something to satisfy them because for some reason, God isn't giving them what they want. Now, the reason that God has withheld the rain is because they acted in disobedience. And like any good parent, God has been disciplining his children for three years, still providing for them, but not providing the way that they wanted to be provided. And so that's where we find ourselves. There's a ruler, Ahab, who is a ruler of the people. Ahab had kind of led the people to the Canaanites saying, let's worship Baal. And the last prophet of the Lord, Elijah and Ahab, they would butt heads a lot. And this is kind of one of the final showdowns. So we're going to be in 1 Kings 
chapter 18, and I'm going to read this account. This is a historical account of what's happened a few thousand years ago. It's a large chunk, so follow along with me, and we'll find out what does God say about our idols. Verse 20, 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Let's do it. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so here we have the spiritual showdown between God, Elijah and God, and the prophets and representatives of Baal, this made up Canaanite desert God who is supposedly going to bring down rain. And just like the people that originally lived this, this story is a confrontation between God and whatever else is competing for the number one spot in your life and in my life. See, what's the, what's the problem? Here's the big problem that the people find. They find themselves with divided worship. Choosing between the living God and counterfeit gods is the question that we really have to consider. Who are we going to choose, the living God and the true God or counterfeit gods? You remember when Jesus was asked, 
What's the greatest commandment? Everything that was given to Moses in the law, the first five books um, of, of the Bible unpack the story of God. And you have Moses receives the law. Uh, over 600 laws were given, given to him. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, what's the most important? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all, A-L-L. You see, he didn't say love the Lord your God with some or with a piece, that the most important thing we can do is love the Lord our God with all. How do we give our all to God? Because you and I are probably, very, I know I am, I'm assuming you are, very good at giving part of ourselves to God, loving God with some, but the people here are challenged with the reality of giving God our all. You see, the Israelites, they were non-committal. They loved God, but they had these spiritual side pieces that they would kind of hang out with and they would give their attention to. And they weren't giving God their all. And here's what I know about love. I used to think love was simply an emotion that we experienced. Now I realize that love isn't an emotion that we experience, but it's a choice that we make no matter the circumstance. The circumstance for the Israelites was that there was no rain. So they went and they chose to find their fulfillment somewhere else. You see, friends, that's why we go after these different idols. Because we don't trust that God can provide for us the things that we desperately want and desperately need. And so because God can't provide for us or for some reason is holding out on us, I'm going to go get my fulfillment somewhere else. I'm going to go get my fulfillment in my money because it's tangible. And the more zeros I have in my bank account, the happier I will be. If I can just buy that house, if I can maybe have that boat, if my family could just take the vacations that I see everyone else taking on Instagram, then we'll be happy. If my spouse just happened to act like this, or maybe if she actually looked like that, we have all of these different idols because we don't trust that God will provide for us the things that we want and the things that we need. And I've got to say, young people, this world will desperately try to get you to worship idols and pull you away from the one true God. I won't say old people, I'll say more experienced people. You have watched this as you look back on the course of our life. We see different moments in our lives where we found ourselves wanting the affirmation from other people through the things that we do rather than the affirmation of God's word and what he is, declares is true about us. You see, Tim Keller says it beautifully. The greatest danger is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts. You see, for a lot of us, our life, that we have a portfolio, and we say, this is my life, this is my portfolio, this is my life, the life that I live. And if we open up our portfolio, there's different tabs in here. And I've got a family tab, and I've got a spouse tab, and I've got my dreams tab, i got a retirement tab, I've got a money tab, I've got a, hey, things I want to buy tab, the house I want to have tab. Oh yeah, and by the way, I've got a God tab in here. So, so God is a part of my portfolio. So what's the problem? What's the problem? God's a part of my life. Why is there an issue? Well, the issue is you're asking God to coexist with all these other things that you have prioritized in your life. 
And this is exactly what Elijah was telling the people. You see, God deserves wholehearted worship directed towards him alone, not coexistent sharing of his glory with the idols that we create. And again, the danger is we're asking God to coexist with things in creation. We're asking the creator to coexist with things in creation. If you take a look at our account in verse 21, Elijah very plainly tells the people, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, wholeheartedly follow him. But if Baal is God, go ahead and follow him. And you remember what the people's response was? They were silent. There was no response. There was no word. There was nothing that they could say. Here's why. When we take God Almighty, the creator who is self-sufficient, and we compare him to all the different idols that we create in our lives, of course we're going to fall speechless. He far exceeds anything in creation. We are literally asking creator to coexist with creation, and that just cannot happen. But this is where the people found themselves, and this is where we find ourselves. Some of you might be sitting here saying, hey, I'm fine with my idols. God's a tab in my portfolio. I'm good. That's completely okay. But it's important for us to unpack the reality of what idols are. And you need to know some truths about idols. Because idols are deceptive. Because counterfeits don't ultimately deliver what they promise. If you take a look at our account, there's three things that are true about idols that the people of Israel found out about Baal, this Canaanite foreign rain god, this idol that was created. First of all, idols are silent, but we still let them speak to our hearts. Five times they called on Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. They started at morning. At noontime, Elijah started to talk a little trash and he started giving like some human characteristics to their God. Hey, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on vacation, maybe he's just resting. And they started going all the way to the evening. And there was no voice, no sound. No one answered their call for help. You see, idols can't, are silent, but we allow them to speak to us in our hearts because we're desperately seeking them continually and continually and continually. So in the silence, we allow the idols to speak to us and dictate where we go and what we do. Second, idols are powerless, but they're still strong. The prophets would call on Baal to answer them, but Baal had no power. There was no way that Baal was going to give them what they wanted. You are asking your idol to provide you something it is absolutely incapable of giving you. I work with a population of people, athletes, that struggle with idolatry like no one else. That the idols when it comes to athletics is the media, it's the crowd, it's the teammates, it's the coaches, it's agents. And unfortunately, because it's people, they're going to be let down at some point. I'll never forget, last year, our, our, we, I, was, I was sitting there, we were at a Broncos game. The, we were 3-1, and one, had a pretty good start to the season. We're playing a home game against the 0-4 New York Giants. The game starts... And as is the custom at Mile High Stadium, the Broncos run on the field and 75,000 people are cheering the team onto the field. Two quarters later, 90 minutes later, 
It's 24 to nothing. The Giants are winning. And as the team is running off the field, guess what the crowd is doing? Booing. And I remember sitting up, we do our Bible study on Mondays. And I remember sitting there Monday with the guys who we do Bible study. I said, guys, did you realize the same people that were cheering you 90 minutes later booed you off the field? You cannot put your worth in what other people think about you because people will turn on you. Idols are silent, but they still speak. They're powerless, but they're still strong. And lastly, idols are deadly, but they still promise life. They hook us because we give them power. Can I tell you that idolatry will take you down a dark path? That idolatry is completely opposite of the gospel. Because idolatry, your idol will say, hey, give me your all, give me your all, but your idol gives nothing back. The gospel says Jesus gave us his all and asks for nothing back except that we trust him and believe in him. You see, one of the ritualistic components of worshiping Baal for the Canaanites was cult prostitution. Because Baal was not only the rain god, Baal was the god of life, also the fertility god. And so they would have practices where people would go into the temple and they would engage with these temple prostitutes and that's how they would worship Baal. And then they would actually resort to some other things that we look back and think, this is, this is ludicrous. If you remember the account, what were they doing? They would cut themselves with swords and spears and blood would be flowing. One of the other ways that they would worship this Canaanite God was through human sacrifice, even child sacrifice. And so think about this. There was no rain, so they called on the rain God who happened to be the fertility God that gives life. Rain, water gives life, so that's how they would justify it. They would have to sacrifice a life to be able to call on this God to give life. We look at this and say, that's crazy. How could anybody cut themselves or how could anyone stab themselves or sacrifice a child just to worship this God? But can I tell you that every single one of us, the danger that we fall into when we worship idols is that we cause self-harm. I can't tell you in my years, most of my ministry, I would say 90% of my ministry years, for the last six years, I've gotten to work with 18 to 35-year-olds. And I still get to work with that population. Can I tell you how many young ladies I've sat in front of that have harmed themselves physically through eating disorders and different things because they wanted to look a certain way and that was their idol? To be able to be accepted, to be able to look away, to the, 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 be, be able to have this confidence, but yet they would walk into rooms and be incredibly insecure. That I've sat with many a couples, men and women who have stepped outside the bounds of marriage because their idol was sensuality or their idol was adventure and they stepped outside to pursue that idol and their family and their children and their spouse who they promised to love for the rest of their lives are harmed because of it. That idols promise life, but in reality, they're deadly. Idols will bring the worst out of our lives as we pursue what we think will benefit us in life. So what do we do? Now that we've identified what idolatry is, how hurtful idolatry can become, how silent, what do we do? What does it look like for us to worship well? What's our response? First, daily surrender. Believe that God is worthy 
of my continual submission. So what does this look like? What does this look like in our lives? First, it looks like heart, heart renovation, that we value what God values. And to find what God values, we've got to come back to this account. In verse 36, it says, At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet stepped forward and he prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, here's what God values. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Verse 37, answer me, Lord, answer me. So this is God's value. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Do you know what God values? Is that we know that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is the sustainer of our lives and we go to nobody else except him. That's what God values. We have to go with what's true. What's true is you and I owe our full existence to God creator who loves us and who embraces us and turns our hearts back to him. We've got to remember that idolatry is cheating on God and not just forget the consequences for our sin. And the way that we live this out, this life expression that we have, we live out what God values. In verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You see, what we're not talking about is just destroying your idols. What we're not just talking about is disregarding your idols. What we're definitely talking about is replacing your idols with something else. If you're anyone that's struggled with addiction or work with people that struggle with addiction or know someone who's struggling with addiction, it's not being fixated on not doing something or staying away from something. It's replacing it with something, something else that you are to pursue. And so it's not just saying no to our idols, but it's actively choosing, saying, I'm taking that idol off the throne of my life and I'm putting God on the throne of my life because he deserves and that's who I run to. That's how we face idolatry in our life is we choose to follow and worship God Almighty. It's not destroying idols, it's replacing them. And so what do we say? How do we live out our lives? What do we declare? Here's what we declare, that Jesus is our savior, that following Jesus changes everything, that worshiping Jesus changes everything. And that question that we ask, can I trust God to provide for me? Can I trust God to provide for me in a season of my life where I feel so incredibly alone? When it seems like everybody else has what I wish I did, but I don't. How committed is God to you? His answer is Jesus. He's committed to the very end. He is our everything that our idols try to be and then some. He is a fulfillment of our hopes, our dreams, in our longings. It's Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Some of you might be sitting here saying, well, what about that one time when Jesus says, I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly? And we look to ourselves and we say, I'm not really feeling this abundant life. I don't feel like this life is very abundant. 
I wonder if it's because we're choosing to worship Jesus alongside other things in our lives. And I wonder what life would look like if instead of being a tab in our portfolio, that your life in my life would literally be Jesus's portfolio, that his purposes, that our life is his and everything that we do and everything that we are and everything that we say and everyone we interact with becomes a tab in his portfolio that my money is a part of his portfolio, that my family is a part of his portfolio, that my dreams are his dreams, that my money is his money, that my retirement is his retirement, that my kids are his kids, that everything that I am is his. Instead of fitting Jesus in what we want, what if we position ourselves in Jesus and that's where we're able to see our lives and our ministry and the opportunities we have clearly. You see, idols are powerless, but he is all powerful. Idols are speechless, but Jesus is the word of God has been written on the hearts of men and women for all of eternity. Your idols will cause you to act erratically, but Jesus will make you whole. Your idols will ask you to bleed and die for them. Jesus bled and died for you. This is the God that we serve. So the question for us is, who are we going to choose to serve? Who are you going to choose? Idols that we create, desires that we pursue, dreams that we have. And I'm not saying, here's the thing, not all of those things are bad things. They become damaging when we take good things and try to make them ultimate things. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And I'm just going to pray a prayer of confession because I need to confess these idols that I have in my life and give you an opportunity to confess the same. And we're going to live out together this beautiful passage in the Old Testament. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the choice that we get to make now in prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your incredible grace, for your love for the way that you lead us and guide us with compassion and the gentle ways in which you bring us back. And Lord, even if we look at your history of your people, they completely walked away from you, worshiping idols alongside of worshiping you, and you turned their hearts back. And so here we are, a people, claiming to know you, claiming to love you, claiming to want this life that's abundant, that is found in Jesus, claiming to be people of truth, yet we find ourselves worshiping you and other things at the exact same time. We confess. We confess. We confess the ways that we've fallen short. We confess that we have placed idols on the throne. And Lord, here today, we declare that we are choosing love, that we are choosing you, Jesus, that we choose to pursue you and you only. And we do this knowing that you are the sustainer of our lives. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us to be men and women that are not just directed by you, but that are focused on you. And it's in the matchless and beautiful name of Jesus that sustains us in every area of our life that we pray these things. Amen.